you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm excited we're getting to an end of a section. Woo! Not the end of a chapter. Don't, don't get too excited. But we are getting to the end of a section. <clears throat> uh, today what I want to do is I want to look at verse, uh, finish up verse 11 and 12. And it's the end of the blessing sections that we have in the sun. So what I want to do just to kind of, as a fresh reminder, is I want to start at the very beginning of the section, which is verse 7, and read verse 7 down to verse 12, and read the blessings that we have in the sun. It's just a rich section. Uh, but this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. In him we've received an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, should live for the praise of his glory. An incredible section. Uh, Just as a quick reminder, or just as a kind of recap again, uh, in verse 7 and 8, what Paul's talking about is this idea that, hey, you get to experience redemption and forgiveness in Jesus Christ that he has really set us free from the captivity of sin, that he has paid the redemption price, he has set you free, which is a phenomenal thought. Then it says, according to the riches of his grace, he has lavished like a Niagaran waterfall upon you all wisdom and insight. In other words, he's given you the ability to reason and understand the great mystery that he's about to talk about. In verse 9, he says he's making known to us, he's unveiling this incredible mystery of his will, which is according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And what is the mystery? Of course, we spent several weeks looking at the mystery. But the idea of the mystery is that it's not something that's like you have to be initiated into, like, whoo, it's a magic trick, right? And only those who are initiated into the magic trick knows the magic trick. It's not that idea. The mystery idea is God has this purpose and a plan and a passion for you to know this grand mystery. And what is the mystery? Well, has many layers to it, but simply it's Jesus. It's the fullness of his life. It's the fact that the, the Gentiles are made fellow heirs with the Jews. It's the idea that it's Christ in me and me in Christ. And all that stuff is found in the depths of this mystery. And that mystery, Paul says in verse 10, uh, is being used, it's, it's, again, it's purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, which are in heaven and earth. Again, it's like that big funnel idea that here's all things that get put on the top of the funnel, and it's all being funneled down into one pinnacle, uh, one point, one passion reality, whatever, whatever you want to call it, one climactic thing. And what is that? Jesus. And again, we keep quoting Romans 11, but it's that idea that all things are from him and through him and to him for his praise and his glory and his adoration and his renown. That, that what is, what's, what's God's big agenda? Well, it's from him, through him, to him. What does he want to do in the church? Well, it's from him, through him, to him. What does he want to do in your life? It's, your life is to be from him, through him, to him. That, that, hey, he's the one who's given you life. 
He's the one who wants to live through your life, and your life should be given unto him. Again, as uh, Oswald Chambers said, it's my utmost for his highest, my everything for his glory, that, that my whole agenda, the whole pressing of my life is in one direction. What is that? It's Jesus. Now, last week we were looking at verse 11, and we talked about this idea that we've received an inheritance. Well, how have we received the inheritance? Well, it's in Jesus. Again, and we know that because every single blessing that Paul's talking about in chapter 1 finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So we have the inheritance in him. Hey, we get that. But the question then becomes, what is our inheritance? Well, it is him. That he has become our inheritance. And isn't it, and we're going to talk about this again in a few weeks when we're talking about the Holy Spirit being the down payment of our inheritance. But isn't it a great thought that when we think inheritance, we think future date, we think sometime out there, uh, we think, well, when we get to heaven, you know, we'll play eternal shuffleboard, you know, eat bonbons with no calories, all that kind of great stuff. You know, we'll be skipping from cloud to cloud. You realize that's, that's not your inheritance. Oh, I get money. <laughs> Sorry, you don't get money. Well, I thought I got a mansion. That's actually not the word in the scriptures. So you don't even get a mansion, right? You, you get a dwelling place. The whole idea of the inheritance is all about relationship and intimacy. And, and why would you want money? I mean, of all the inheritance you can have, well, no, I want money now. <laughs> if somebody wants to give me money, I'll take it. I'll take the money now. But I don't need, my inheritance is not money. They pave gold. I mean, they pave the streets with gold. Just like you don't go out and go, woo, asphalt. Yes, I want to take some home. <clears throat> you realize in heaven, you're not going to be like, whoa, gold streets, woo, I'm going to chip off a piece. What good is that going to do you? It's asphalt, right? And in other words, that's going to be the least of your concerns. Why? Because the reality of your inheritance is not in possession of things. It's in a possession of a person. And his name is Jesus. And you realize that we get to experience that reality right this very moment. That this is not, hey, wait till you're dead and you get to experience some inheritance. This is, he has lavished an inheritance upon you right now that you begin to get to, you, you, you get to experience just the beginning taste of it. And again, and again in verse 13 and 14, which we'll get to eventually, but there's this idea that there's a down payment of the inheritance. Hey, you don't get the full inheritance, but you do get a taste of the inheritance, which is phenomenal. Because if you think about the best that we can have on this side of heaven, which is really good, by the way, with Jesus, if you can imagine if that's only just the tip of the iceberg kind of stuff, if that's just the taste of what we get to have in all the eternities, can you imagine what, what eternity is going to be like? If, if the best that we could experience here is just a little, it's just a brief little morsel. It's, it's like going to Costco. I don't know if you ever go to Costco, but I love Costco. <laughs> if you go to Costco and, and if you go at certain times of the day, like Friday afternoons between like 1 and 3, not that I have this timed out, but if you happen to go around Friday at around between 1 and 3, you could like have a free lunch because almost every aisle has a sample, right? And what's the purpose of the sample? It's to give you a little tiny taste so that you buy the big thing, right? Now, whether or not you buy the big thing, you get to have the sample, which is my favorite part. <laughs> so, so I'll go <clears throat> Friday between 1 and 3, right? And, and, you'll, and you'll go, and I'll start walking on the aisles, and I'll smile, and I'll talk to the lady. Thank you so much, and how you doing? That's wonderful. Oh, what are these? You know, and... and, and <clears throat> And if you time it really well, if you come like a right at the end, like a three to four, right, then they have to get rid of all their stuff. And sometimes they'll give you multiples, which is even better if you want the Costco strategy. But anyway, do you realize that what we get experience this side of heaven 
is merely the sample. It, it's, it's not the fullness, right? You, you get the taste. You get the one piece of popcorn so that you buy the huge Costco-sized version of it, <laughs> which is pretty epic. Could you imagine that the best that we get to have now with Jesus is just the one kernel? And what we experience and for all eternity is the big Costco-sized massive bag of delight? Isn't that a great thought? And you get to have an inheritance. And you don't have to wait for your inheritance. You get to experience your inheritance right now because your inheritance is a person. His name is Jesus. I think that's awesome. And as we talked about last week, you realize it's not just he is our inheritance. There's this biblical idea that we are his inheritance. That he gets something out of this. Which is what? He gets a bride. He gets a people. He gets a body. He gets a building, which he's fashioning. And isn't it beautiful as, as you begin to walk through all of the, especially the Old Testament, you get this language of God is after something. Well, what is he after? A bride, a body, and a building. That he's longing for intimacy. He's longing for a place to dwell. He's longing for a body to show forth his grandeur on this earth. And we get to experience that right this very moment. So just as he is my inheritance, so too I am his inheritance. Which is a great idea. Now, what I want to do is I want to finish or continue looking at verse 11 and 12. So again, if you have your Bibles, I just want to read 11 and 12 again just so it's fresh in our mind. But Paul says, In him also we have received an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should live for the praise of his glory. So again, Paul's saying that we've received an inheritance. Oh, that's awesome, Paul. What's our inheritance? Jesus. But something else is going on in the passage. And he says that we are being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I don't know what circles you're from, but it seems like when you get to the word predestined, either people start standing up and cheering like, Woo! We love the word! Or some people go, Shh! We don't talk about that word. It's interesting, when you look at that word, predestined, it's actually two Greek words. Let me define this for you. It's two Greek words. One, it's the word pro, which has this idea before in the Greek. And the other one is horazo, which means to define or has the idea of to mark out the boundaries of. It has the idea of to determine or appoint something. In other words, there's a determination, and when did that happen? Oh, it happened before. So I am determining that I'm going to have lunch today. Amen. <laughs> when am I doing that? I'm not doing that at lunchtime. I have determined beforehand I'm having lunch. Make sense? At some level. <laughs> it's interesting when we look at that idea, it's not... We're not talking about puppeteering. Uh, God is sovereign, right? Everyone nod, nod your heads. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is, he is sovereign, right? He has all authority. He has all power, all dominion. Uh, he knows all things. He is everywhere. Hey, we, we get all that. But you realize that doesn't mean, even though he's sovereign, he's fully sovereign, that doesn't mean he's puppeteering everything. Making sense? In other words, uh, I woke up this morning and I decided to brush my teeth. 
Did God pick up my hand and go, maybe, but it's probably me. (laughs) And I'd probably miss this back tooth, right? And God's like, I tried to do it, but you were just stubborn and you were like, no, right? He's not, God's not puppeteering, but he is sovereign. God has a will. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And he is pressing that agenda forward, that he has determined beforehand what the end is going to be. Hey, we know that he wins. What is it? He is predestined. He has predetermined that all things should, should find its fulfillment in Christ. He has predetermined that Christ gets all the glory. He has predetermined that he wins and the enemy loses. That is phenomenal. Isn't it? Some of you are awake this morning. Now, that word predestined, it only sh- this particular word only shows up six times in the New Testament. And again, it's, it's interesting that when you look at those instances, again, it's not puppeteering kind of language. It's this idea that God has a will. He has a plan. He has a, he has a desire. Well, what is his will and his desire? We're getting there. <clears throat> but you have to understand that he has predetermined something. Uh, I, I have predetermined I'm going to have lunch at 12 o'clock. But you know that there's, there's things that happen, and I may actually eat lunch at 12.30. But has that changed my predetermination? No, it has shifted it a bit, and I had to respond to it. You realize, in a similar sense, it's not that God is controlling everything. He's not manipulating all the things, but he's taking all the things, and he's leveraging it, leveraging it unto his purpose and his plan. That makes sense? We're going to come back to it, so, so just stick with me. So what is it that he has determined beforehand? Well, he has determined beforehand that there's a purpose. Now, that word purpose means to set forth a thing, to determine something. It's a plan. And oddly, of the 12 times that word purpose is used in the New Testament, eight times it's translated purpose. Four times, this is so weird, it's translated showbread. So four times this word purpose is referenced in the Old Testament, the tabernacle temple stuff, where the priest would take out the 12 loaves of bread and set it before the Lord. And it was purposed. It was showbread. Isn't that bizarre? That's so funny to me. So you get this idea that God has predetermined something. Well, what is he predetermined? Oh, to have a purpose. He has a plan. That he is setting something in, in view. Well, what is that? Well, again, look at verse 11 and 12. It says, In him we've received an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God has determined beforehand to have a plan to work all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, that word work is fascinating. Uh, The word work, uh, it's the Greek word energeo. Uh, It's where we get the idea of energize or energy. It has this idea of to implement, to cause to function, uh, made to be, to operate. I think my favorite definition is to bring about an effect. What is God doing? Oh, he is predetermined in this plan of his, according to the, the counsel of his will, to take all things and work them out in one direction. Does that make sense? That he is energizing, he's bringing about an effect 
with all things. That, that he is taking all things that are going on and he's leveraging it for a purpose. Now again, that will, according to the counsel of his will, has this idea of the intent, uh, the will, the purpose, the plan, and attitude of mind. And what is all this, the counsel of his will? It's, it's for the praise of his glory. So, so, so take all this. Hey, we have an inheritance. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's Jesus. And as a part of this inheritance, you realize that he has predetermined that all things are going to be literally leveraged and caused to bring in about an effect which brings his glory, which brings about a lifting up of him, which brings about this realization of who he is in this world. Again, it doesn't mean that God is causing everything. Now, he allows it, but there's a significant difference. Does it make sense? Uh, for example, uh, we say God is sovereign. He is. So that must mean that God causes all things. No. Now, I'm probably going to step on some theological toes, but <clears throat> which is dangerous. Isn't it interesting in Scripture that the moment you go hyper-sovereign or hyper-free will, you get weird. I mean, theologically, there's, it breaks down. It has some major issues. That it seems like in Scripture what you have is God is fully sovereign. Amen. He is. And yet in his sovereignty, he is allowed free will. Think this through. You realize if God is causing all things, then every time I sin, it's his fault. If he's puppeteering, and he's, oh, I lied today. Well, God made me do it. No, he's, he cannot lie. He's not an author of sin. He doesn't bring about destruction and death. He is life. He is light. He is truth. And he cannot deny his nature. So are there things that God cannot do? Yes. There's a lot of things God cannot do. Because he can't violate his nature. He can't lie. He doesn't murder. He doesn't commit adultery. Right? The Ten Commandments are a revelation of his character. And the reason he says, hey, don't lie, is not because it is good for social order. He says, don't lie because you are my people. You're reflecting me. I don't lie. Therefore, you can't lie. Because when the world looks at you and you're lying, what you're declaring to the world is that I'm a liar. I'm not a liar. You can't lie. I'm not a murderer, says God. Therefore, you cannot murder. Why? Because if you murder, what you're declaring to the world is that your God is a murderer. I'm not a murderer, so therefore you, as my people, cannot murder. Does that make sense? So God, there are things God cannot do because he cannot violate his nature. He does not promote sin. He does not bring about sin. He does not cause sin. Everyone okay? Well, I thought he's sovereign. He is. In fact, when you put all this together, he is actually more sovereign because you realize he's given us a measure of free will and yet in our free will, we have the choice to either choose him or not choose him. We can obey or we can live in sin. And yet isn't it amazing that he's willing to take all of that, all the stuff that the enemy meant for harm, all the stuff that was meant for destruction, all the stuff that was meant for a cross, and he's willing to leverage that according to his predetermined plan to use all of this the cause and effect to bring about his glory. That is phenomenal. Uh, I don't know about you, but you look at your past 
I look at my past, I just like, oh, why would I have done those things? Why was I so dumb? Why was I just so selfish? Why was I so rebellious? Why was I so willing to shake my fist in God's face? Why, why was I just so self-centered? Why was I so willing to give in to the pleasures of sin for a moment? Why was I just, and I'm like, God, can you ever use all this? He's like, I got it. That, hey, I'm not happy about all that stuff. And yeah, that has caused destruction. But you realize that I'm going to work this for good, for my praise and my glory. Now that's brilliant, folks. Because I don't know about you, but I, it's like you look at your past and you're just like, I screwed this thing up. God's like, I know. <laughs> and I'm going to get glory from your past that's screwed up. Now you realize that that no longer has to define you. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, there's been a line that's been drawn in the sand. Who you once were is no longer who you are. You stepped over the line, and now the old is gone, the new has come. And the only language that we can now call you is that you are a brand new creation or a creature. That this isn't you anymore. This is you. And your identity is not in who you once were. Your identity is now in who you are in him. That's phenomenal. Yeah, but what about my past? Don't worry about your past, because he's going to take all your past, and he's going to leverage that for his good. That is a phenomenal reality. To, now, that does not give us an excuse to sin. I get that. Hey, that does not give us an excuse to, well, I'll just keep on making mistakes. That's not what I'm saying. But you realize we can put our trust and our confidence in our overwhelming God. Why? Because in his sovereignty... He's taking all things and he is predetermined to have this phenomenal plan according to the counsel of his own desire and intent and pleasure that he's going to take all things and literally cause an effect that brings about glory for himself. That when you look at your life, or maybe I should say it this way, when someone else looks at your life, they're like, God has changed you. You are not the same person you once were. I need whatever it is that you have. And somehow he is bringing about glory for himself through your life. Well, what about this problem that someone did to me? Do you think God was rejoicing over the fact when, uh, when someone was murdered, or when someone was raped, or when someone was, caused destruction in someone's life? And Do you think he was sitting there going, Woo, that's awesome! Yeah, we should do that again. No, obviously not. Hey, that breaks his heart. That he does not triumph, he doesn't rejoice over sin. Right? He's obviously just torn, torn to pieces. But you realize he can take that situation where someone produced chaos in your life and bring about a, a movement. He's going to cause an effect where he's taken all the stuff of your past and bring about his a restoration and a pleasure and glory for himself. Well, you don't know my past doesn't matter because he's going to leverage all things under his purpose and his plan hey you've received an inheritance what's your inheritance him and when you get him smack dab in the middle of your life what is he going to start to do he's going to take all of your life all the good and all the bad and all the destruction all that kind of stuff and he's going to leverage it and bring it about an effect according to his predetermined plan for his glory and for your good uh, it's like the principle of the manure, which we talk about around here once in a while. 
ha, someone comes and just dumps a huge truckload of manure on your, on your property. You realize that's not fun. It smells. It causes chaos. And what do most of us do? We rejoice in the manure. Yeah, we build little huts, we sing songs to it, you know, every so often we go back to our little manure hut and we open the door and we go, yep, that's what they did to me. And we, we rehearse the whole thing and we just, and we make the manure piles these little idols in our life. And we hate it, but we love to hate it. But you realize that what someone meant for evil, God, you know what God desires to do with that? He desires to teal that manure into our lives to bring about a greater growth, a, a greater blessing, that, that the most fertile areas of our life should be the areas where people have dumped manure in our, in our lives. Why? Because that's what he has used to till into the ground. And you know, the best flowers, the best crops, the, the best vegetables grow out of the best manure. Well, I don't like manure. I don't either. I'm not saying you should just go and start producing manure but when manure is dumped in your life, and it is, we live in a world where manure is flying all over the place. But you realize that when manure is dumped in your life, you shouldn't just, you shouldn't wail and moan. You should go, woo, I cannot wait to see what God's going to do with this manure. Because God is going to take this manure and till it into the soil of my life. And he's going to bring about, he's going to leverage all things according to his predetermined plan. And he's going to bring about a purpose in the midst of this manure that gives him glory. And it's actually going to be work for my good. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, and we know, hey, we know this, or maybe we should know this, that all things, do you know what the word all things in the Greek means? Everything. Yeah. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Get this. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, that's our word, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. He has this predetermined plan that what? That you would be conformed to the image of God. That you would actually look like Jesus. Well, how's that going to take place? Seems like in the passage, he's going to take everything and leverage it for that purpose. He's going to take the good things and move it to the, to get you to be conformed to the image. He's going to take the bad things. He's going to use that to cause an effect for you to be conformed to his image. He's going to take the manure that people have dumped in your life and use that to bring about a purpose and a plan so that you be conformed to his image. So, hey, don't wail and moan and weep when people dump manure. I mean, yeah, it's sad, cry, cry for a day. But you realize that we should be rejoicing. Why? Because he's going to leverage that for a purpose, which is what? His glory. His renown. For our, actually, for our betterment. Why? Because it's going to help conform us into the image of his son. I love what the New American Standard says. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It's not that he's causing all things, you understand. He's not producing sin. But what the enemy meant for evil, he is leveraging. And he's going to use it to bring about a purpose and a plan for his glory and for his renown. Uh, Genesis 50 has that similar idea. Here's the brothers of Joseph, and Jacob just died, and so they come to Joseph, who's the second most important person in the entire world. And they say, yeah, Joseph, <laughs> before Dad died, uh, he, he wanted us to remind you to forgive us. And I think, I think the concern was, you know, 
that while dad was alive, Jacob or Joseph was going to be kind to the brothers. But as soon as dad dies, I'm paying you back for what you did to me. Hey, you sold me as a slave. Hey, I mean, I, I toiled in Egypt and all this kind of stuff. And so here are the brothers, they're a little nervous about what the second most powerful person in the world might do to them. And so they say, you, Dad told you to forgive us. <laughs> do you know what Joseph says at this whole thing? He looks at them and he says in uh, Genesis 50, 20, but as for you, you intended to harm me. Hey, you backed up a huge truck of manure and dumped it in my life. Hey, I was your flesh and blood and you sold me into slavery. Now, I know that a lot of us siblings have thought about doing that to our siblings, <laughs> but they actually did it, right? And he spent most of his life under Egyptian slavery and then imprisonment. But listen to what he says. Hey, but as for you, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many lives. He says, you know what God's been doing? He took all this stuff that you meant to harm me, and he's been leveraging. He's bringing about an effect, and that effect is that he's saving many lives. And had you not done that, I wouldn't be where I'm at. It's not that God caused you to sell me into slavery. It's just that which you meant for a harm, God is leveraging and purposing and planning to bring about a, a betterment. Do you realize that's true in our lives? that we have an inheritance in Jesus, that, that he is my inheritance and I am his inheritance. And as such, do you know what he's wanting to do in my life? He's wanting to take all things in my life and he is predetermined to have this purpose and a plan that he's going to cause an effect in my life where all things, good, bad, and ugly, is being leveraged to bring about his purpose, to bring about his plan, to bring about his glory, which again, it, it does involve me because he's wanting to shape me into the image of Christ. He's wanting to conform me and let me have the mind and the, the heart and the character of Christ. Well, how's that going to come about? Well, he's going to leverage all things, good and bad and ugly, to bring about that end. But then he's going to cause all things, good, bad and ugly, to be used in my life to bring about his glory. That when, when someone hears what God's doing in my life, they're just like, what kind of God does this? I, I don't know if, if you guys were here, but a couple weeks ago, Samuel was just telling a little bit of his backstory, and the whole time I was just going, oh, God is so good. And hearing the testimony of what, what God's done in your life is so phenomenal to me. Because he's even there going, I don't know what I mean to describe this, but my life did not look like it does now. And I'm like, isn't that, isn't that awesome? Which means when people look at his life, they're just like, I need that. Because if he can do that in your life, oh, maybe he can do that in my life. And you realize that such a life is a demonstration and it gives praise and honor to Jesus. Do you know how good that is? What if we would allow God to take every aspect of our life and leverage it for his end? We talked about this back in verse 3, but there's this idea of that heavenly perspective thing. That we live in two realms. We live in an earthly realm. We live in a, a heavenly realm. And wouldn't it be amazing if all the stuff that we see down here in the physical, that we're just like, oh no, how are we going to survive this? What if God is wanting to leverage this and give us a brand new perspective, a heavenly one? See, what if the lack of finances that you have, God is wanting to leverage that for a greater gain, and he would give you a different mindset of it. 
See, what if the flat tires weren't just flat tires? What if there was a purpose in it? Hey, hey what if that medical condition you, you got or that sickness or, or what, what if that thing that was happening in your family, what, what if it wasn't just, oh no, how are we going to get over this? What if God could give us a perspective, a divine perspective in the middle of this stuff that we say, God, I don't, I don't understand all this, but I believe that you're going to cause this for good. I'm not saying that you caused this down here. I'm not saying that, you know, God is leveraging, you know, causing flat tires. He might. And he can't. I, I have no problem with that. But you realize that he, he's not puppeteering. He is sovereign. But you realize that in his sovereignty, he is taking all things, even that which the enemy means to harm and to destroy, and he's just using that to bring about a purpose and a plan for his renown and for his glory. Why? Because this is all from him and through him and to him for his praise and his glory. So let me give you a couple quick application points. In the passage, it's interesting that as you get into verse 12, he says we, in verse 11, we've received an inheritance that he's, that he's having this predetermined plan to bring about his purpose. He says in verse 12, so that, oh, here's the, here's the whole intent of the thing. So that we who were the first to hope or trust in Christ, should live for the praise of his glory. Do you realize that when you, when you begin to understand what God is actually desiring to do, when you begin to understand that, that God is, is leveraging all things for your good and for his good, hey, when you start recognizing that, 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 he, that you have an inheritance, which is Jesus, and we are his inheritance, hey, when you begin to understand that God is predetermined to take all things and bring about an effect for his glory, do you realize that it causes you to hope and trust in Christ? That you can actually rest in the realities of who he is. That in the midst of the chaos situations that may be swirling around you, you can say, I trust you. That, hey, that there may be an Egyptian army coming up one, one side, there might be mountains on two sides, and there's a Red Sea on the other. But you realize, God, in the middle of this, it would be foolish to despair at such a time as this. Because I know your character, and I know that even in this situation, you're going to leverage this to bring about your end. See, what if in the middle of your finances, you just say, Jesus, I can trust you. What if in the middle of your medical condition, it's Jesus, it's not that this is great, but I'm trusting that you're leveraging this for your end. That, that God, in the middle of my family chaos, I'm trusting that, that you're taking this and you're bringing about a result. Now, obviously, we need to be praying for our families and praying for the finances. I, I mean, I get all that, and that's true. But you realize that when you begin to understand what God is doing, it causes a deep hope and trust in him and what he's doing. By the way, hope here is not like a uh, Christmas wish hope, right? Oh, I really hope I get a pony. Oh, I really hope I get a pony this year. It's not that kind of a hope, right? It's that you have something, Christ, and because of that, it produces hope. It's not hope that he's going to do something. It's I know him and his character. Therefore, I have this assurance and this rest and this hope and this trust because I know him and his character. See, what if we would live as believers? That is what we're called, right? And as believers, you realize the operative term in that word is believe. We're called believers because we're the ones who believe. 
What if we believed in the character and the nature of our God? What if we did put our trust and our hope in him? What if we did look at all the situations that are swirling around us and just say, God, I, I don't understand it all, but that's okay because I trust you. I trust that you have predetermined to have this plan to bring it about an effect for your glory. That you're going to use the hardships and the sufferings and the trials to bring about a sanctification in my life. That you're bringing about a, this change, this transformation of my life so I look more like your dear son. That you're, doing, you're leveraging all things in my life for your purpose. And you realize what, what the end result of all that is, is at the end of verse 12, it says that we should live for the praise of his glory. We mentioned this back in verse 6, but what it would look, look like if every moment of every day we were just living under the praise of his glory. That it really was, as Chambers said, my utmost for his highest. My life for his renown. That my, every word that I speak is for his praise. That, that my attitude was for his glory. My thought process was for his renown. So you see, what if my life was given over to live for the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ? See, what if my life was an anthem declaring the richness of Jesus? What if, as I shopped down at the supermarket, see, what if that time at the supermarket wasn't just me shopping for something? What if it was for his glory? As, as Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. See, it doesn't matter how tiny or minute the activity is. Hey, if you're going to go over to the coffee shop and drink a latte, oh, do it for God's glory. Amen. Hey, if you're going to spend your afternoon studying, how should you study? Not out of duty, but do it for the delight and for the praise of his glory. Hey, if you're going to babysit kids, guess how you should babysit kids? Yeah, with a cattle prod. No, just kidding. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you babysit kids? You, you babysit kids for the praise of his glory. See, see, what if everything that was being done in my life would be unto him? And my life was just this musical score, this soundtrack, this anthem to who he is. Do you know what we'd have to call people who live like that? I think we'd have to call those people Christians. Could we have the confidence in him that no matter what has ever happened to you in the past or what you're in the middle of right now, Hey, whatever sin you have caused in the past, it's not that God has cheered that on. We understand that. But could I understand that he is leveraging all things for this predetermined plan to bring about his purpose, which is all about his praise and his glory and his renown? Because all this is from him and through him and to him. Could we just get lost in the reality of our inheritance and not just try to figure out our inheritance because this is not academic. This is relational. See, what would it look like if I just got lost in the intimacy of my inheritance? Because it's just it's one kernel of the fullness that I'm going to experience. But I want to experience that one kernel to the fullest, ex fullest extent. Well, let's pray. Lord, this truly is all from you and through you and to you.
for your praise, for your glory, for your honor, for your renown. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by the fact that I have an inheritance, that I don't deserve anything, and yet I receive everything. Well, what would it look like if I lived in that reality? What would it look like if I would press in, not just to know about an inheritance, but to actually experience my inheritance in the fullest way possible this side of eternity? Well, Lord, what would it look like for me to begin to recognize that you have predetermined that all things, that you're going to cause all things to work according to this plan of yours, which is to bring all things for your glory? Well, what would it look like if I began to recognize that the junk that I have caused or the junk that people have caused in my life, that somehow you could leverage, that you're causing all things to work together for good, that you're desiring all things to be used in my life to conform me to the image of your son. See, what would it look like if I began to recognize that you are leveraging and purposing and planning all things, that you're strategizing so that all things, not that you're causing it, I, I get that, Jesus, but what would happen if I just began to realize that you are leveraging everything that the enemy meant for evil to bring about your purpose, for your good, for your glory, Lord, could I put my hope and my trust in you afresh? Lord, could I look at the situations that are swirling me and just say, I, I have an unshakable, unwavering hope and trust in my God because I know his nature, and I know that even in the middle of this situation, he's going to use this to conform me into his image and to bring about his glory. Lord, what if I could see my finances that way? What, what if I could see my family situations that way? What, what if I could see my church? What, what, what if I could see the stuff that's going on in culture? And, and Lord, what if, what if I could see the, the trials and the difficulties and the sickness and the problems of my life through that lens? That it's not just something physical that I'm having to deal with, that, that you're wanting to give me a spiritual insight and perspective. And in the middle of all of that, allow me to realize that all this is bringing about an end. That as we look back, in the eternities, we would just go, whoa, isn't God amazing? How he took that and brought about, how he was able to take a cross and bring about a redemption for an entire world. How's he able to take that situation in my life and bring about a... Lord, I just want to freshly put my hope and my trust in you Lord, would you give me a heavenly perspective in all areas of my life? Lord, let me not get bogged down with the physical. It's not that the physical is bad, but let me just not see through the lens of what's going on around me. That, hey, when, when an entire Syrian army surrounds me, that I would have the heavenly perspective to see the horses and chariots of fire roundabout. Lord, in the middle of the flat tires, I wouldn't just see a flat tire. I, I would see some greater purpose and plan in the middle of it. Hey, when I saw a lack of resource and finance, I didn't just see a lack of uh, a checkbook, but I, I, but I saw a purpose and a plan in the middle of it. Well, I mean, when I looked at a sickness, I didn't just see the physical sickness. I would see the purpose and the plan in the middle of the sickness. Lord, I want to trust you on that kind of a level. But I admit, I'm going to need you to do that in my life. Somehow you're going to have to elevate my perspective. Somehow you're going to have to get me out of myself. 
So somehow you're just going to have to overwhelm me with who you are. So I, I understand your character all the more. So that which I put my hope and my trust in isn't just this idea or this ideology or this thought. It's in the reality of who you are. It's in the character, this unchanging, unwavering, immovable nature of who you are. Lord, thank you that you're leveraging all things to conforming to the image of your Son. Thank you that you're leveraging all things for your glory. Lord, we just give you the praise and the glory for you are worthy. And we love you. Let's give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.